Let's start the conversation. In all of these weeks, if you've been with us, or if you listen to the podcast, that's certainly what we've done. We haven't really um, solved anything, per se, but we're trying to start the conversation. And today is going to be especially true. I'm going to try to share as much as I can um, without going over too, too much in my, uh, my allotted time frame. Um, and we're just not even going to begin scratching the surface of uh, the issue that we're talking about today. Now, we're in the third week of our series entitled Headlines, in where we're spending some time wrestling with some of these, these current events. All of these are things that have made the news locally here in central Ohio, and all of these things are impacting real people's lives, especially amongst some of our ministries that are, are a little bit more community development. Um, so we've covered so far human trafficking, prostitution. You can check that out on the podcast if you want to learn more about the, uh, here, the interview that I did with Hannah from Catch Court. And then last week, we talked about immigration, and we had a, a Tyler from uh, the Chris, an organization that works with refugees and, immigra- uh, uh, and immigration, and we shared, he shared some thoughts, answered questions, and we learned a little bit about what's going on with immigration and how things are shifting. Today, we were originally planned to have a conversation around the opioid crisis, but um, we had a few things change, and so we're flipping our topics. We're going to deal with opioids uh, next week, um, and today, we're going to jump in and talk about gentrific- gentrification. Now... Because uh, my wife and I, Alyssa, um, the other pastor here, uh, we live in a gentrifying neighborhood. We, we bought a house in Franklinton. And if you know anything about Columbus, Franklinton comes up on the radar as a as sort of a very fast-changing, gentrifying. It's, we get a lot of comments. We get a lot of conversations. So this is something that we've, like, the we didn't quite know what we were getting into when we bought the house. Maybe that's, like, everyone's story. But, but this was, like, a thing that we began to um, find ourselves in the middle of a conversation over the last two years that we've lived, or two and a half years that we've lived in Franklinton around what is gentrification? What does economic, what is going on with economic segregation, racial segregation, community development, all of these hot topic uh, issues? And so one of the things I want to say is, is that this is, um, even though we've been wrestling with this for, in a variety of ways, it's very complicated. So I'm going to start by just giving us a really basic definition of gentrification. So we, we kind of all have a starting place. We can all kind of work from this place. So in preparing for this message, um, the last two weeks we've sat down and interviewed people up front. Uh, it just didn't work out for this topic to have somebody uh, come and, and join me in a conversation. But I did go and sit down with a number of people. I sat down with three individuals, um, all of which have backgrounds in urban planning and are engaged in work around community revitalization and development and et cetera. So one person was an employee of the city of Columbus. Another person was a, uh, works for the Columbus Foundation. Another person and works for United Way, and all of them are engaged in sort of top-level conversations around how do you help neighborhoods improve, but do it in a, in a, in a good way. And so I asked one of them, what, what, what is gentrification? You know, what is, what is the problem? What's going, like, well, how do you even define it? What are we talking about? And he said something like this. He said, improving communities isn't a bad thing. The bad part is improving communities in a way that displaces the people who live there. Okay, so this is the basic definition of gentrification. Improving a neighborhood in such a way that displaces the long-term, often poor residents. So it is possible, and it does happen, where neighborhoods improve in such a way, they're done in such a way, they're developed in such a way, that long-term residents just no longer can live there for a variety of reasons. Um, And it is a complicated issue, but the issue is less about improving a neighborhood. Everyone wants neighborhoods to improve. Everyone, all of my neighbors in Franklinton want Franklinton to improve. The concern is, is what happens when places like Franklinton or the East End or, you know, even Linden a little bit or, you know, all of these other, what happens when they improve in such a way 
that people who've lived there for maybe generations no longer can for a variety of reasons. So here's how I've experienced it in my, uh, in my, uh, my little neck of the woods. Two years ago, Alyssa and I bought a house in Franklinton. And over the last two years, our neighbors have changed significantly. And if you hear the stories of why our neighbors have changed, you'll get a glimpse of what gentrification is all about. So let me tell you the story. So here's our house. Here's a satellite of our, of our home uh, right here in Franklinton. Um, we bought this place uh, two years ago. Now, we were able to borrow money. I'm going to get a little... I'm going to get a little personal. I'm going to share, maybe overshare a little bit. You guys know that about me. It's fine. We borrowed, it. we didn't, we borrowed money to buy this house. We didn't have a down payment, right? Because I, I didn't come from a wealthy family. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have generational wealth. My, 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 I paid for my own college. Like, this is just, I'm just being honest with you, right? So I'm like lower middle class white guy. But we had connections. And so I knew a banker who connected me with a loan officer who got me the loan that worked with a zero down payment. I mean, because I had a degree. And we were able to buy this house. Um, and over the last two years, the neighborhood has changed so drastically, and we've put a fair amount of work into it, that the equity we have in the house is ridiculous. I, I ran the math, and I probably have more wealth or equity in this house, um, twice as much as what 70% of the members of our free store make in a year, just because I had the right connections and I was able to buy a house at the right time. And do you, want, you know what I'm saying, right? So I'm not bragging, I'm just... I'm just because it's not really that impressive. But I'm just like, give, let's just, we're just getting a perspective of it. So that's our house. This is our neighbor behind us. They were at one time going to buy the house we bought, but decided not to because they said it needed too much work. That was our mistake. And uh, they bought the house behind us. And um, similar story. Middle class, not necessarily from wealth, but they had the right connections. They had the right credit. They were able to get a loan. They were to buy the house. They also put a significant amount of work in it. And here's the thing with me and my neighbor. If we're going to live in this house... And so we don't want to live in the houses, right? Now, maybe many of us kind of take that for granted. You're going to live where you live until you don't want to live there anymore, and then you either sell it or stop renting, and you'll either make profit or you'll live somewhere else. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we'll live there until we don't want to live there, and then we'll sell it, and we'll, we'll come out ahead. That's the story. That's the benefit of being at least middle class. That's not the benefit of people living in poverty. One of the major issues of individuals living in poverty is they are going to live in the house until they can't live there anymore, and then they're going to have to find somewhere else to live. And this is a huge issue amongst the families that we work with at Little Bottoms Free Store. So that's the story of the house next door, be behind me, next to my neighbor. Um, this is where my friend Rusty lived. Um, I'm going to tell you t stories about two different friends. One is named Rusty. One is named Rufus. Um, if you didn't know, Franklinton is deeply Appalachian white. Um, working class neighborhood. So I got Rusty and Rufus. These are my friends. So Rusty lived in this house. He didn't own it. He, uh, he rented it. But he was a great neighbor. Um, fantastic neighbor. Took, uh, took, uh, took an, uh, washed out for our house. Kept an eye on our back gate when people were going in and out of it and they shouldn't have been. Let me know when the garage door was open. He was a great, we, we texted, you know, we communicated. It was, he was a great neighbor. He, did work, he helped me work on the house. In fact, one time we were working on the house and he told me, he opened up with me and he said, hey, I really wanted to buy the house you bought. I was like, oh. He's like, I couldn't get a loan. And I was like, oh, I, I could, obviously. And he said, um, I wanted to buy it on a land contract, which is what people do in poverty sometimes. They buy it on a land contract. So um, it's something that's happened. It's not a good thing. And thankfully, the owners didn't, for his sake, I think, the owners didn't want to do a land contract with him. Um, so we got the house. And he told me the story. And after a year of being our neighbor, he eventually, he told me, he said, hey, I'm going to have to move. They're, they're shutting my house down. 
What had happened is the previous owner, I think, passed away. It ended up to a property management. It probably ended up with a speculative investor. Some person out of state doesn't care about our neighborhood, doesn't never seen the house, ends up in control of this house. So they, uh, code enforcement says people shouldn't be living there. It wasn't a great house. So they said, you can't rent it anymore, so you're going to leave. So he leaves. But this is being controlled by some property manager or lawyer or speculative investor. I don't know, somebody, but they've never been to the house. So they don't board it up. They don't do it. They don't make sure it's safe. And as soon as Rusty moves out, which was a great neighbor, squatters move in. Okay. They were not great neighbors. They uh, ran the house on generator for a year, through the winter, if you can imagine. This is a real story. This is happening within a couple miles from here, friends. They ran this, the house on a generator, um, and they began to run drugs and women, uh, these issues that we're wrestling with. This was happening just behind us. Um, and our neighborhood in that particular block became really unsafe for a lot of reasons. Our uh, car was stolen once. Our truck was broken into twice uh, while these neighbors. So um, eventually, this house changed hands again. It went from this random investor to a local investor, somebody who lives in the area. And I think they actually live in Franklinton. And immediately, they put the eviction notice up for these squatters, which, by the way, if you're squatting somewhere, you still have to be evicted. You can't just kick people out. It's interesting little nuance in the law. Um, so they put the eviction notice up. The squatters eventually move out. They get their stuff out, all of that. And uh, he gets the house boarded up. And our neighborhood eventually becomes just significantly safer because of that. And uh, one of the nuances I've learned around gentrification and uh, even some things about like white guilt that I maybe wrestle with is local homeowners like myself and my neighbor or even local investors are 100% better for neighborhoods than out-of-state speculative investors or property managers. So that's just one of the nuances that like if you're looking for a bad guy, so to speak, it's, it's not usually when, you know, good meaning people move into a neighborhood and try to be a good presence in that neighborhood. It's really these bigger, distant organizations, investors who are, don't care and they leave houses to just become uh, whatever they need to be until they're worth selling. So that's what happens. That's, that's, um, that's uh, my friend Rusty. If you move over to this house uh, next to us, um, this is where my other friend lived. Great guy, great neighbor, helped mow my grass, overcharged a little bit for it, but that's okay. Um, and then I found out, well, I, yeah, it's not that part of funny, but um, it turned out that he had uh, gotten a, a hold of some opioids and drugs, became addicted, um, and you know, thankfully he had a niece. And his niece f figured this out before we did, and I felt like an idiot, because um, I lived next to him. And I should have noticed him just wasting away, but I didn't, um, busy raising a kid, you know, or whatever. So his niece makes him leave, and they, uh, they keep renting the house for a while, hoping that he could come back, but they just hurt, his niece just decides, no, you're not gonna live in this neighborhood, you're not gonna live that close to access to drugs and all that, and so they leave. We have new neighbors, but, um, uh, and they're fine neighbors, thankfully, but I still, miss, um, I still miss my friend. So he moves. And then this is my favorite story. The house back all the way up at the top of the screen. This is a house um, that was in disrepair. So much disrepair that uh, it got hit with a variety of code violations. So this is a theme amongst gentrification. Its siding was cracked and, and just terrible. And so I don't know what was going to happen, but they had to fix it. They had to get the house painted ASAP or something bad was going to happen. I'm not exactly sure what would, but it was going to be an issue. And so this is the coolest part. This church finds out about it. They send their youth group down. I don't know the church. I don't know the youth group, but I saw them working outside my back window. They set up ladders. They buy red paint. They paint the house. They make it look great. He passes the code violations. It's fantastic. Great story. Except for they did too good of a job. Someone came to the house and offered a significant amount of money to now buy the house because the neighborhood's gentrifying and this family. 
I don't know the details. I'm guessing that uh, they probably didn't get what it would be worth in a couple of years, so it might not have been the best decision, but it was probably more money than they thought it was worth, and they ended up selling the house. And I've got all kinds of mixed feelings about that. Here's a church that worked hard to keep them in the neighborhood, and but then at the other hand, it's like they ended up coming out ahead in some strange way. Now, I share this because these are the kind of stories of people living in neighborhoods that are in transition. And I share all of this because these are the kind of issues that are at play when we talk about gentrification or the struggle of the urban poor. Things like middle-class families and early adopters buying houses and fixing them up, or out-of-state investors or local investors and drugs and prostitution and code enforcement and boarded-up houses and squatters and skyrocketing property. These are the types of things, all of this complicated mess, and they're impacting real people's lives, and people are moving because of it, or they're selling, or they're, they're all of these things play out, and often when you're wrestling with this, and this is coming from somebody who lives in this conversation, you don't know what the right action step could be. And part of this is because these kinds of stories are just a symptom of, of deeper issues at play. The, the big problem with all of these issues are often they're influenced, they're manufactured, not just because of individual choices, but by the larger system of laws that are set in place. And the residual impact of laws, even outdated laws that were in place throughout the 20th century or even the formation of our country. And that's really where I want to head today. So um, welcome to church. If you're new with us today, we are going to spend a significant amount of time talking about property law. Huh? Is that exciting? Interestingly enough, we're going to start with um, a property law that you might not know exists. It's in the Bible. So in the Old Testament, there's a significant amount of laws. You know the Old Testament law? There's a significant amount of laws in the Old Testament that talks about uh, property distribution, selling and buying property, and displacement, what it means for people to have to move or sell their property. So we're going to start there. We'll look at the Bible. We're going to spend some time in Scripture today talking about property law, and then we'll look very briefly at property law in America. And what I want to do, and I'm going to challenge you to do, is like, let's consider American property law, and let's hold it up against Old Testament property law, and just see how they compare. Uh, spoiler alert, they don't compare well, okay? So let's jump into it. We're going to look at two books in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible with you, you can open it. Old Testament, we're going to look at the book of Numbers. We're going to look at the book of Leviticus. Um, these are uh, fantastic books that talk about the formation of God's new nation, the nation of Israel. The people had come out of Egypt. They were moving. They would become immigrants. They were going to move to a promised land. They were going to create a new nation and the big part of the promise, the big part of this experience of God's people was they were acquiring land. And so there's all kinds of laws and nuances on what that meant for them to have land, for them to acquire it, for them to keep it, for them to sell it. All of these different Old Testament laws around it. So we're going to go to Numbers chapter 26, 1 to 2. Moses had been traveling with the people. Um, some of the people had rebelled. And so God waited for a generation to die off, and a new generation would come along. And when they did, God told Moses to count how many people were there. So here's what it says. Numbers 26, 1 to 2 says this. The word of the Lord. After the plague, um, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community by families, all those 20 years old or more who are able to serve in the army of Israel. This is a good first step. The first step to a fair and equitable community development or urban development is to get a good sense of who's in your community. How many families? What are we talking about here? Are we talking about a large number of people and where are they living and what's their story and who are they a part of and what tribe? 
So once you know who's there, you can decide how to, you know, best distribute the resources. And that's the reason for the census in Numbers. Numbers, the book Numbers comes from the fact that there's multiple censuses. So this is one of the censuses where we get Numbers, the title from. And this is the reason for this census is because of land distribution. So they would distribute the land based on the size of the tribes and the families in their midst. So skip to 52. We're going to skip over the listing of the censuses. It lists out all the families. But if you go to 52, it talks again. So the Lord said to Moses, the land is to be allotted to them as an inheritance based on the number of names. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance, and to a smaller group, a smaller one. Each is to receive its inheritance according to the number of those listed. Be sure that the land is distributed by lot. What each group inherits will be according to the names of their ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. In other words, the land of this new nation, the nation of Israel, would be distributed amongst families based on two metrics. First, the size of the land, how much land you got. So if you're a family here, you're a couple here, you'd get land based on how big your family was. And not just your family, but your tribe, this, this tribe of people that you're a part of. So your land would be divided based on your size, which is really, really fair if you think about it. You get the land that you need, based, you know, so a larger family gets a larger land. And, but then it's not just the size of the land that matters, right? It's where... You're, where you get land. Like in America, the way in which we determine who gets what land was not by lot. Lot was a random way. It's like throwing dice. They said, we're going to determine where, which land you get. So some land's probably better for growing and others probably better for grazing and others probably mountainous and not very useful. So we have to divide it up evenly and we're just going to assign you the land that you get randomly. That's not how it worked in America. We kind of put the people we wanted where we wanted them based on how useful the land was, right? If you know history. Um, so everyone would get the amount of land they needed. Now, if you line this up, if we begin to compare it with American property laws, it doesn't, doesn't compare well. And, and part of it is, and I'm just, we'll just rest there for a second, we don't, we don't believe in necessarily equal distribution of resources. That makes Amer that's not an American value. We do believe in an equal distribution of opportunity, right? That's what we tell ourselves. Equal distribution of opportunity. But that's not the same thing as an equal distribution of resources, is it? Now, here's the craziest part. The Old Testament law didn't stop there. Like, that's pretty generous, pretty equitable, pretty fair, but it didn't stop there. Here is the craziest part. So much of God's relationship with Israel was rooted in this idea of the promised land. So it's no surprise that they, they add all of these different property laws and how they're supposed to interact with the land. So not only should the land get divided up randomly and based on your size, but there were laws in place to keep this land from getting redistributed to other people, specifically the concept called the year of Jubilee. If, you, if you've kind of avoided the Old Testament and you're like, ah, the Old Testament's not my thing. I'm really like the Gospels or Paul or whatever. I encourage you to go into the Old Testament and look up and read the year of Jubilee. It's a fascinating concept. Um, I'll give you a little brief uh, um, a summary of it right now. It's in Leviticus chapter 25. Um, here's what it says. It says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. So here's the idea. Every 50 years, this was the idea. Now I'm just going to tell you they didn't live into this because it was too generous. So the Israelites didn't actually, there's no, there's no evidence that the Israelites actually 
enforce this law, which is interesting because the Pharisees in the New Testament loved enforcing laws, but no one ever brings up this law and tries to enforce it. But the idea was that every 50 years, there'd be a special year, a year of jubilee, that allowed people who were displaced from their land, for any number of reasons, they sold it, they left, whatever, if they were displaced from their land, they would get a chance to get it back. In other words, if you got into financial trouble and you sold your land to someone, you would get that land back in the year of Jubilee, which would happen every 50 years. It was a pretty crazy idea, but it was a simple concept. It's like playing the game Monopoly. How many have played the game Monopoly? Okay, we've got a few here. You play and someone wins and it's annoying. And in order for them to win, you basically have to lose everything. I mean, that's how the game works. So they get rich off the property they bought from you and the other players lose the property that they had acquired over time. So someone ends up rich and someone ends up with nothing. That's how the game works. Now in most societies, the winner, if we applied this to the, how nations work, in most societies, the winner would pass the winnings on to their children and the loser, wherever they ended the game, would pass their losings on to their children. But in Israel, after 50 years, or what was essentially the length of a generation, your children or grandchildren will get to start with the same pieces you got to start with, which is a great idea because no one wants to play Monopoly indefinitely. Can you imagine playing Monopoly and picking up where you left off the last game? It'd be terrible. So the Junior Jubilee was like, no, 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 after 50 years, we're going to swipe the board, we're going to start over, everyone goes back to their original land, and we're going we're gonna to start over. And so you, know, you don't have to inherit, you don't inherit the wealth of your parents, but you also don't inherit the loss of your parents because every 50 years, everything resets. Now, if you read verses 14 to 17 out of Leviticus, you can see that this really impacts how land is valued because you're really buying the land for a 50-year period or less, and so it changes the value. You can read that on your own. Uh, but all of this is rooted in the theology. It's verse 23. It says this. It says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you reside on my land as foreigners and strangers throughout the land that you hold as a possession. You must provide for the redemption of the land. He says, God's talking to his people, and he says, we're not going to sell land to each other, and it's going to last permanently, because friends, it's not your land to begin with. It's mine. I own it. You're just stewarding it, and we're going to reset the board every 50 years. That was the idea. That itself is, if you kind of get lost in everything else that I'm saying today, hold on to that. Reflect on that. I don't think that's necessarily how we often think of what we own, this idea that we're stewards, that it's actually God's, that God has the say. Now, there were a number of other provisions in the year of Jubilee. I encourage you to read it. Um, rights for the relative to buy the land back and cancellation of debts, a, a full sweep of the board, so to speak, a complete reset. Everyone gets another chance. And it was such a radical concept that they didn't actually implemented as far as we can tell. But some suggested that if they did, or if anyone else did, this kind of radical, generous, fair, equitable, like absolutely crazy way of doing property law, if someone actually enforced this every 50 years, a full reset, they would probably eliminate poverty in a community. It just hasn't happened. Now I say all this for a reason. I think we can agree that these laws are overly generous and maybe too fair so fair and so generous, they maybe even make us uncomfortable. So fair and so generous, the Israelites don't even enforce them. They don't bring it up. The Pharisees aren't complaining about it. But here's the thing. As fair and generous as these laws were, they still weren't perfect. 
Jump back to Numbers, Numbers chapter 27. Just one chapter after they talk about distributing the land, starting with verse 1, we read this. It says, the daughters of... Anyone want to take a try at that word? No? Me neither. So the daughters of Z, um, and then it lists kind of who they are, and I'm going to skip that part if you're reading along. Um, it says, they came forward and they stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders of the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And they said, okay, so they, they go to the judge, they go to the, the leaders of the community. So we've got, a, we've got a complaint here, these daughters, women, okay? He says, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers. Korah was a rebellion. Earlier it said Korah wasn't going to get any land because his family didn't deserve it because they were evil. That's whatever. So he says he wasn't part of Korah who banded against the Lord, but he did die of his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So as fair and generous as this sort of land distribution was, there was still this flaw. You see the law, which maybe you picked up on because they're only counting men who could go and serve in, you know, in the military. It was for men. Men were counted in the sentence. Men would get the land distributed. So there was this one tribe, only daughters, and they say to Moses, hey, Moses, what about us? We have no sons in our family. So does our family just not get any land? As fair and as generous as the Old Testament law was, it still favored some parts of the population more than others. Women were generally excluded. Slaves were excluded. Foreigners were excluded. So very generous for if you were a free man, who was an Israelite. Generous, but not perfect. So Moses, he takes this request to God. He goes to God and says, hey, God, what's going on here? What do you want me to do? And God says, yes, they deserve land too, verses five through seven. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Z's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance. They, they point out the flaw in the system. Moses takes it to God. God says, that's right. Yeah, that, that doesn't, let's not do that. Let's fix it. So the women of this tribe, they become landowners. Now, don't glaze over the significance of this, friends. This is thousands of years ago in prehistoric Israel, and the women are going to become landowners. Put this in context. The first property laws in America, the great country of America, that allowed women to own property. The first ones that really showed up were in 1839 in the state of Mississippi. They allowed women to own property, not land. So it's like, women's rights, 1839, we finally can own something. Slaves, specifically. You can own property, slaves. If you just, that's the layers of sort of an unjust property laws in America. The first rights women get is to own another human being. Now, slowly over time, these rights, you know, they grew and they developed in various states to include housing and even businesses, but it wasn't until the 1970s, don't need to tell you all this, you know it already, it wasn't until the 1970s that women could get a credit card without their husband signing for it. But thousands and thousands of years ago in prehistoric Israel, women, because someone pointed out a flaw in the system, were owned property. So, I say this because the, the law is very generous, but it wasn't perfect, even in scripture. It had to be adjusted, right? The law is just, that's how they work. And this wasn't the only loophole that impacted these women. We're going to get lost in the weeds a little bit, but stay with me. We're going to go somewhere. Later in Numbers, in chapter 36, they resurface with another complaint. Not the women, but the men of the larger tribe of that family. They go to Moses and they say this. It's a long verse, so hold on with me. It says this. They, it's listing all the people who came. I'm going to skip that part. They came and spoke before Moses and the leaders and the heads of the Israelite family. So they call an assembly again. Verse two. 
They said, when the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of our brother Z to his daughters. Next verse. Now suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes. Then their inheritance will be taken from their own ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. And then when the year of Jubilee for the Israelites comes, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of ancestors. I told you we were reading property law. This is, what, this is how it reads. Here's what's going on. These women inherited land because their father had no sons. But if these women marry someone, that land would naturally go to their husbands. That's just how it worked. They basically owned land until there was another man in their life who could you know, own it. And if their husbands were from another tribe, that land would go to that tribe. And if the year Jubilee comes and the land resorts back to the original tribe, the question they're asking is, will it resort back to the women's tribe or will it resort back to their new husband's tribe? And they said, I think it's gonna resort back to the new husband's tribe and Moses agrees. So in this particular case, as generous even as the year of Jubilee is, in this case, if it was enforced, which it wasn't, it would have worked against these women and against these tribes. Okay, everyone take a breath. Here's my point. As generous and as fair and as equitable and as beautiful the Old Testament laws are regarding property, and as important as those laws were in building a just society, even these laws, God-ordained laws, weren't perfect. And they favored some people more than others. And in certain situations, things got messy, and those in the margins, specifically women, foreigners, and slaves, would not come out on top. Here's what I want us to understand. On a scale of fair to unfair, God's laws were way up here, right? And on a scale of generous to not generous, God's laws are like way up here. And on a scale of equitable to not equitable or just to not just, God's laws are at the top. And yet, in some cases amongst those in the margins, they still were not fair. They still were not generous. And they still were not equitable for everyone. If we use that same scale on American property laws, they're not even starting up here, friends. Most of the laws built around American property laws had to do with originally seizure, which is at the best unfair. We just take the land. Or purchase. If you had the money or the power, basically you could have the land, right? So we're already starting much lower than this ideal, okay? So the question becomes, how much lower will that impact those in the margins? If God's laws were generous and they still failed at times, how much more can we assume American laws will? Now, I know we live in a society that loves America, thinks America is the best country, so this is very controversial. I get it. But biblically, America is nothing compared to the nation of Israel and the Old Testament ideals, or at least the ideals that were supposed to shape the nation of Israel. And so even as great as Israel was or could have been, it still wasn't perfect. So we can't, we can't pretend that America is going to be perfect either. It's not perfect. It, it, its laws have served some people really well, and others, especially women and previous slaves, African Americans, the poor, foreigners, it hasn't served them well at all. In fact, it's done a lot to hurt them. I say all of that to just really create space in our hearts and our minds to say, hey, you know what, maybe things weren't, aren't as great 
as they could be, especially when we compare it to God's ideals in the Old Testament. There's a video I wanted to share today. We're not going to share it. It's, it's about 17 minutes long. Uh, I am going to share a clip in a second, but it talks about all of these different American uh, laws, property laws that have impacted. It's called Segregated by Design. It was recommended to me by uh, one of the people I interviewed. Uh, they work at United Way, and they said, if you want to understand what's going on with gentrification and segregation in our community, you got to watch this video. It's based on a book called Color of Law. I haven't read the book, so I can't recommend it, but I have watched a video, and I do recommend it, and uh, there's a place at the end of the service where you can request a link, and I'll send it to you personally. In the video, it summarizes all of these laws, and uh, one of the things that it talks about that I am going to show you a clip is um, this, this topic that comes up often in this conversation called redlining. Maybe you've heard of it. Redlining was mentioned um, in all three of my interviews with the various you know, experts on this topic to explain uh, why Columbus is the way that Columbus is, but why all of the cities are the way they are. And so I want to show you this clip. It's just a one-minute clip from this 17-minute video. It talks about redlining. Um, and as we do, as we reflect on some of the, just begin reflecting briefly on some of the laws impacting um, uh, American, the American cities, the urban environment, just keep the Old Testament in mind. These, these, these things that we reflected on in the Old Testament, just keep those in mind and hold those in tension with each other. So let's, let's watch the video here. The term redlining comes from the federal government's creation of maps of urban areas nationwide. And those maps were color-coded to indicate where it was safe to insure mortgages. Anywhere African-Americans lived, even places where African-Americans lived nearby, were colored red to indicate to appraisers that these neighborhoods were too risky for the FHA to insure. The FHA's justification was that if African-Americans bought homes in white neighborhoods, or even if they bought homes near those neighborhoods, the property values of the homes they were insuring, the white homes they were insuring, would decline, and therefore their loans would be at risk. In 1940, for example, a Detroit builder was denied FHA insurance for a project that was near an African-American neighborhood. He then constructed a half-mile concrete wall, six feet high and a foot thick, separating the two neighborhoods, and then the FHA approved the loan. The way it worked is very simple. I'm learning all of this for the first time in preparation for this series. Is The federal government would do risk assessments on neighborhoods because they're going to provide insurance for 30-year mortgages. They used to not have 30-year mortgages. They're going to provide an insurance for the banks based on these risk assessments. So you'd get graded A through D. And D neighborhoods and many C neighborhoods, they're not going to get the insurance, which means you're not going to get the loan, which means you're not going to buy the house or you're not going to build the house. Um, but if you got the A or B rating, then you would. So if you get the loan, then you own the house, and now you have wealth that's acquiring, and you can send your kids to college and all this good stuff. If you don't, then you're renting, and multiple generations renting. You're not acquiring wealth. You don't have these resources to pass on to your children. So I recently pulled up the redlining map of Columbus. Would you like to see it? Find this interesting? Let's bring it up. Here's a, this, is, this is a federally commissioned map. This is a real thing. I'm not making this up. Um, here it is. Um, you can see, uh, I'll share this with you. If you look at the red areas, that's where gentrification is happening. Okay? So at one point, people didn't, couldn't get houses insured in those areas because of the quali- you know, quality of life, all this sort of stuff. Um, now they're becoming desirable. So you've got Franklinton right here. It's uh, red, 
and uh, yellow, so C and D. You have Grandview, actually, interestingly enough, has a fair amount of yellow. Um, if you know anything about the, the community of Grandview, is historically a working class community, not necessarily wealthy. There's some, some parts there um, that are blue uh, in Grandview, that other parts are yellow, and if you're familiar with even just the Grandview history of like up the hill and down the hill, this is one of the conversations that used to happen. There used to be two elementary schools to serve these different types of neighborhoods, and this actually just changed recently, and it's a, it's a part of the conversation in this neighborhood. You've got, of course, then the green areas. You've got uh, Clintonville up north, you can't quite see. You've got Upper Arlington, you've got Bexley, and interestingly enough, you've got Westgate over in the hilltop that was uh, listed green. These are A-quality neighborhoods. You're going to get a loan form. Now, the metric they used to determine this was a variety of things. What, you know, there was just a variety of realists. These are white realtors filling out forms. Now, we don't have the form for Columbus. It would have been interesting. I'm, not, I'm actually wondering what happened to them. But OSU has forms for all of these other cities in Ohio. You can go look them up for yourself. And it's it's hand-typed realtors' notes that they're submitting to the federal government to determine risk assessment. So I'm going to share with you some snippets of these forms. And what I want you to see is that this wasn't subtle. It wasn't like, they're very clear that this is a race class issue. So here's some of the notes. I'm going to show you only forms from D-rated, red-lined neighborhoods, okay? So here's, here's some of the notes. And I'll just say that if there was any African Americans in the neighborhood, it was automatically D. It would get a red line. And, uh, but there were other neighborhoods that didn't have African Americans. They're also listed D because of other reasons. We'll get to that in a second. So here's one. 15% African American. The other thing that's interesting about this note is smoke, noise, and dirt from railroads. This goes back to this idea of distributing land randomly in the Old Testament. In cities, the polluted areas were reserved for the people who, they were kind of sort of directed in that area. So pollution is a big part. And then the health and then the vitality of the family and the education of the kids are all being impacted by pollution, which was a lot worse in the 1950s than even, than even now. So uh, two notes there, 15% African-American. So it's derated for those two reasons. The next one goes like this. It says the African-American influx appears to be static. But then it lets you know that these are the better kind of African-Americans because, you know, they own homes. Very racial, very class-based. Next one. They even let you know, like, what's the influx of African-Americans in a neighborhood? Is it up or is it down that's going to you know, impact the value of the property there? So slow infiltration of African-Americans in this particular neighborhood, rated D, even though it was slow. Next one. Even if there was just four families living in a neighborhood, it's listed. Just four, just four families, but we're going to make a note for it. It's getting listed D. Next one. Heavily populated by not only, the other thing that they were often mentioning is not just uh, um, uh, African Americans, but other foreigners. And they would add notes like, well, these are the good kind of foreigners, or these are the bad kind of foreigners. Like, this is some of the language that they would use in these official documents. So foreigner bird, but also uh, notes like this. Next one. As well as this one. Next one. Low class of white people, probably code word for Appalachian. Now remember, these are not some, you know, personal racist realtor club that's like trying to hurt, you know. This is federally commissioned risk assessment that determines whether you're going to get 
alone. And this is only a couple generations ago. This is happening. So here's the difference between American laws and the Old Testament. Neither were perfect, of course, but in the Old Testament, it was almost like they didn't, they didn't click. It didn't click, oh, this is, like, is going to hurt the women in our family. We should fix it. So when they see it, it's brought to their attention, they fix it. In America, not only did we know it would impact some people in negative ways, but those people are used as a metric for measuring the value of a place. This is just one example of how we've uh, gotten it wrong. Friends, the laws have changed, and um, they probably need to change a little bit more. Uh, but the trickle-down effects of these uh, of generations is overwhelming. I, I met with somebody who's African-American even just this week who lives in Upper Arlington, predominantly white neighborhood, and he, was, he confided to me. He said, yeah, this is the, I'm the first in my family to own a home. His parents didn't own a home. His grandparents didn't own a home. They've, they've rented. And now he all of a sudden owns a home. Change is happening, but it's, the impacts are still residual because of it. We're left to the question. And the question is this, what can we do about it? Like I said at the beginning, we're just starting the conversation. There's so much that we can say, and I just laid a whole bunch of really heavy stuff on a room full of white people, so my apologies um, for that. Uh, I think you guys can handle it, though. There are a number of ways that we can make a difference. The first one, honestly, is to learn more. So I'd encourage you to watch the video. Uh, on your seat, you've got a take action card. One of the check boxes, if you put your name in your email, it say, hey, send me a link to the video. Yeah, you could find it on your own, but I'm telling you, if you fill out the checkbox and I send you the email with the link in it, you're more likely to watch it. So just fill out the checkbox. If you want to see the video, it's segregated by design. You can go to segregatedbydesign.com if you want, but fill out the checkbox. I'll send you the link. It'll be super easy. The other thing is that I think we need to, as a church, promote diversity. We have created, rather intentionally, deeply segregated neighborhoods throughout America, and race tension still exists today. I was talking with a Grandview resident, and they were talking with another Grandview resident, and they said, hey, what have you been up to this summer? It was a true story. So what have you been up to? He said, oh, I've been going to the pool, you know, been going to the pool. Oh, how's that going? Oh, it's, it's good, but I kind of wish they just, um, they, they limited the pool to Grandview residents. And here's the thing about the Grandview pool, if you haven't been. I've been once, and it's a fantastic pool for two reasons. One, it's just a really nice pool, all right? It's a really cool pool. If you haven't been, you should go. And it's not just for Grandview residents, okay? Anyone can go. The second thing I love about the pool, it is by far the most diverse place in Grandview, not been in a place in Grammy that's more diverse. I love it. So he says, you know, you know, uh, she says, yeah, I wish they would limit it to Grandview residents. He says, oh, why? Is it like overcrowded? Is there too many people there? And she's like, well, no, not really. It's just, it's just, well, you know. I don't know. I think I might know. I'm afraid to ask. People say stuff like that, and it sucks. And I want us to be a church where we don't let that go unsaid. Where we don't just let that be said and nothing's challenged. Wherever you live, whatever neighborhood you live in, we need people to embrace, stand up for, promote diversity. If a bill goes before your city council that says pools only for Grandview residents, don't assume it's innocent. Show up, speak out. Do you, do you want to see what I'm saying? We've got to be people. Whatever neighborhood you're in, whatever community you're in, we've got, we got to understand what's really going on here, what's really being said, and we've got to speak up, and we've got to talk. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be mean. But yeah, it's our call as children of God who got, you know, and belonging to a church that is made up of na- people of all nations, we've got to be willing to represent that and stand up for it. Talk to our neighbors. 
So if you're interested in that, um, I think there's lots of room in our community and in this neighborhood and other neighborhoods, whether it's Grandview, Westerville, Worthington, Bexley, all, you know, neighborhoods of our church. Um, there's lots of rooms to hold intentional conversations. Upper Arlington's already doing this. So I got connected with my friend. Um, they have an organization uh, that's trying to promote diversity in Upper Arlington. I think Grandview needs something like that. It doesn't have anything like that. So if you're interested in that kind of conversation, the checkbox. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what's going to happen. But if you're you know, interested in that, there's a checkbox. I want to be a part of that conversation. You can check it at some point in the next year. You know how we work. We'll, we'll get people together and we'll figure out what that looks like. The third thing that I'm just going to throw out real quick is affordable housing. One of the biggest things around gentrification and all of this neighborhood and property laws is that we've got entire generations that don't have anything. They constantly get moved in and out of shelters, people living in tents, people... I have a friend who works almost full-time at a minimum wage job and can't afford a place to live. Affordable housing is a significant issue. A lot of people in Columbus are trying to address it, and we know at Central City Church and specifically our work at Little Bottoms Free Store that it is only a matter of time before we get engaged in, in, in affordable housing. And we don't know what that's going to look like. It might look like somebody, uh, even here today, donating a house to be used in affordable housing, or it might look like a couple of families investing in a place, or it might be developing a grant that allows for rental assistance that we couple with social... Pro- we don't know, but it's a huge huge need, and we know that eventually this is something that we're going to have to be engaged in. So if you're interested in that conversation, there's a checkbox as well, and we'll keep you updated as uh, things develop. So I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to check either the video or the diversity conversation or affordable housing. These are some really tangible ways that you can just be in the conversation to make a difference. I'm going to invite the band to come back up as we, uh, as we close. I want to thank you for allowing us to go on this journey, and I do want us to spend a couple of moments uh, in reflection and prayer. Um, I really believe in God's grace and God's mercy. I, I don't, it doesn't matter how bad things get or how much we mess up as a nation, as individuals, God's grace and God's mercy is able to make all things new. And that's my prayer for our communities and for our neighborhoods. So let's spend some time in prayer, in reflection. Um, and what does it mean to receive that grace, to be washed clean of our sins as, as individuals, as families, as a nation, and to begin something new? Will you pray with me? God, we come before you and Lord, we humbly confess that we have sinned against you in what we've done and what we've said and what we've left unsaid and what we've left undone. Lord, we, we repent. We just trust that your grace is able to cover us and forgive us and make us new. Lord, you are always making all things new. You have called us to be your hands and feet, your ambassadors for peace. Help us to learn. Help us to grow. Make us new even now. In your name, amen. Will you please stand for our closing song?